In 30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard At the time of this recording, Russia just invaded Ukraine, adding a new layer of geopolitical uncertainty to the already shaky stack of pandemic, climate change, and technological peril facing our world. The future feels increasingly apocalyptic, and it's hard to make sense of the countless catastrophes that keep piling on. So, with the world in chaos and confusion all around, what can we do? How do we make sense of it all? Where do we turn for guidance when all feels lost? Well, I decided to do what countless humans have done for millennia and ask my dad. My father received his PhD in nuclear physics from the University of California, Berkeley, shortly before I was born, and then taught physics at Purdue University while I was growing up. He also had a pretty great memory for history, so as a kid, if I had a question about math homework, how the universe works, or who scored the most points in any single basketball game, I knew I could ask my dad and receive a very thorough response. While I've since pursued metaphysics instead of, uh, actual physics, I feel my interest in learning why the world wags and what wags it grew out of numerous conversations with my father and the many, many, many science fiction books he read to me as a kid. So today, with our rockets still frustratingly aimed at each other rather than the stars, I sat down with my father, Mark, to talk about science, science fiction, the current state of the world, and how, despite it all, to be an optimist. Oh, hello, father. Hello, son. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What's our magic word going to be? Our magic word is going to be optimism. Optimism. Oh, okay. On the count of three. One, two, three. Optimism. Optimism. Now, that is a very interesting word. Why did you pick optimism? I was trying to express a way of life or a philosophy that... I think I get from my father mm-hmm. and I previous podcast guest <laughs> have felt like has done me well over the years. And sometimes I don't see it reflected in other people as much. So I am trying to promote it. Yeah. Well, I think especially right now when we're talking and world news, I mean, for the last while world news i think has continued to be a little bit unsettling but it's definitely trending in that direction and i know one of the things that uh you pass along to me is a love of science fiction which i think goes in both optimistic and deeply cynical directions so i'm curious how your optimism feels right now in the in the face of current affairs well I think part of optimism as an outlook is to see the glass half full, to use mm-hmm. a cliche. So certainly there are worrisome trends in the world, and I don't want to minimize those. And 
in some sense, they're bigger than anything that I can worry about. So part of my philosophy is to try and limit the scope of things that I worry about to things that I have some control over. Yeah, I can't do that exclusively, and I don't want to seem narrow-minded about things, but you know, the war in Ukraine, the global pandemic, all the other ills in the world I can't really affect. And so I'm sad about them, but I also have to just look beyond them. Yeah, I think there's a background foreground thing there. And especially with news and digital technology, just bringing every piece of information immediately to our fingertips all the time, that felt like a very chronic problem during the Trump years of Everyone could anxiously consume every bit, a little bit of news, and yet you're not on the impeachment committee. You're not, you have no, <laughs> you have no finger on any lever of power. And so where is this, you're doing a good job as a citizen to stay informed, and where is this um, anxious doom scrolling just to the detriment? Yeah, and I have been trying to get insight I live in a liberal state, in a liberal community. I go to a liberal church. All my friends are liberal. And so I'm trying to constantly understand where the conservatives are coming from and what their mindset is and try to figure out ways, at least in my own thinking, to build bridges. But... Now, I am also cut off from a lot of that because of all those factors I just listed. And so um, it is a puzzle. And I think that that's one of the things that happens in our society now is that a lot of folks on the red side follow the same description that I just did, except you substitute the word conservative for liberal for their church, mm. their community, their friends, and so forth. And then... Uh, they have no insight into how the other side thinks. And I think things have gotten very extreme. So it's hard because, yeah, the looking forward, it seems to go wildly in either direction. It seems like very few people are like, oh, I disagree with this person, but their disagreement is reasonable. Or I'm looking into the future and it's either going to be not great or like sort of okay or like decently good. It seems like we have these wildly fluctuating visions. Well, an analogy that I've drawn to that is that politically, we seem to just be steering back and forth from one side of the road to the other and crashing into a guardrail <laughs> on the right side and yeah. bouncing off across the road to the left side and then smashing into that one and careening back. And I really think that that's a terrible way to drive your car yeah. <laughs> and it's a terrible way to run the world. Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a slightly awkward transition to get into a topic that is very relevant and personal to you, but you're a nuclear physicist, and the nuclear physics, and especially in the last century, seems to represent very much those sort of utopian to dystopian ideals. On, <laughs> on the one side, we're all going to have nuclear power. It's going to fit in your backyard, and everything's going to be great, and we'll solve nuclear waste, and we'll have these atomic utopias. Or we're going to bomb ourselves into oblivion and starve to death in a nuclear winter. And so you were growing up at the height of the Cold War and then got an interest in science. 
So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that background and where your interest in science that eventually led you down deeper into the atom uh, first began. Well, just to start with the distinction that uh, nuclear power and nuclear weapons are a branch of nuclear physics and engineering, to be sure. And there's other parts that are dealing with research into how matter is put together and what we're made of. And I was almost exclusively focused on the latter. I've had almost nothing other than some educational background in nuclear weapons and nuclear power. And uh, I'm happy to talk about those, but my love of science was innate, I think. I was a curious little boy, and I quickly started reading about things, and some of the stuff that I read attracted me more to that subject. Science was at the top of that list, and so uh, I took a, a great interest in it from um, before age 10 even. And then uh, I was able to do well in school. I have some good ability in mathematics, which serves if you're going to study science. And mm-hmm. so um, that fit. And so when I got to college, that was a natural thing for me to pursue because not only was it my interest, but also I knew I could make a living at it. And I chose to be an electrical engineer when I got my bachelor's degree because there's a, a lot of science and physics in electrical engineering, but also it's a practical subject and you can get jobs. Mm-hmm. Then after I worked as an electrical engineer for a couple of years, I found that really what I wanted to try and do in my mid-20s was pursue my heart's desire. And so I went to grad school and I majored in physics and started doing nuclear physics research. And I worked at particle accelerators. Electrons and- were just too big and bulky. You <laughs> wanted to get something smaller and more manageable. Yeah. So um, I departed the career of making integrated circuits, which what I was what I had been doing as an electrical engineer. And then started working with nuclear experiments. And that was exciting because it took me to various places in the world. Um, We lived in Geneva, Switzerland for a half year. And I worked at the European Laboratory for Particle Physics, CERN. And then um, I also got to travel to conferences and visit many other laboratories and work with some really excellent people. And that's one of the things that I'm most happy with about my career choice is that all the people that I've worked with have been really outstanding, intelligent, interesting people, and uh, really fun to work with. And, And fun as people in many ways, too. And so it's a privilege to have those kinds of colleagues, and I'm very glad. And that has continued to this day. I can say that about my current work colleagues as well. Well, I remember as a kid that you partook in the physics fun fair, which was a stage show they would do at the university and have all the various demonstrations. And I also remember as a kid, um, when I had the wart that kept coming back on my elbow, that you were like, well, if we go to a dermatologist, they're just going to use liquid nitrogen and freeze it. And guess what I have in my office? A 
bunch of liquid nitrogen. <laughs> so let's just go into my office and I'll show you some cool liquid nitrogen chicks and then we'll uh, pour a little bit on your elbow. <laughs> yeah, I had been treated for warts with liquid nitrogen and I saw there wasn't a great deal of technical expertise that required medical education and training to do it. And I had the other prerequisite, which was access to liquid nitrogen, which of course most people don't have. So yeah. Um, and I believe that was at least moderately successful. Yeah. I mean, it kept coming back and then eventually I got referred to a hypnotherapist for it, which is another story. <laughs> yeah. But, the roots of your interest in hypnotics. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But so um, going back a little bit, as you were growing up and interested in science, I'm just curious because I feel like the current generation is so anxious. How much anxiety did you feel about the Cold War and the possibility of nuclear war and this being something that was in the background of world news as, as, as a kid? Well, as a child, not so much. I know that there were some children in other places, probably a few years uh, behind me in um, um, school that had to do air raid drills and Ducking hide cover. under their desks in school. And we never had any of that. And so as I gradually became more aware of the world, as I grew up and became a teenager and started reading and listening to what was going on, I came to appreciate the nuclear balance of mutually assured destruction between the United States and the Soviet Union. And I guess there was sort of a feeling of hopelessness, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, that there are some things that are big problems, but they're totally beyond your control. And so, you know, the best coping mechanism I have is to try to not worry about those to the extent that I can. And I think everybody does that to yeah. a significant degree. So I do remember that when the Soviet Union fell, which was in 1991, President George H.W. Bush came on and he talked about having the um, armed forces have a, a stand down in terms of the nuclear posture. Mm -hmm. And I cried. Yeah. Because that was a huge relief, you know? That had been a weight. In the middle 80s, people started to realize how totally disastrous nuclear war would be. There were people who came out, including a paper that was co-authored by Carl Sagan, among others, about the effects of nuclear winter, which is pretty well known nowadays, but this was a new idea in 1980. And they basically said that not only would the sites that got bombed and the fallout zones get destroyed, but then the climate effects would utterly kill the rest of us or, you know, global civilization as we know it. Then uh, there was a movie that was made in the middle 80s that was shown on television, and it was called The Day After, and uh, it was pretty graphic about the detonation of nuclear weapons and what that would be like and what the survivors would face. And none of that was actually new. Well, the global winter thing was kind of new, but uh, I think that those in-your-face things really started to bring home to people that we're in a situation that we have to try to change. And so there was a lot of relief after the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. 
And in some sense, that has just been putting our fears under the rug because the nuclear weapons are still there. Of course, Russia is still an adversary. You know, it's not as if that is something that is behind us. Well, I think I think with technology moving faster and progressing faster, the difference between generations gets more accelerated. And even in the current conversation about Gen Z versus millennials, like my generation grew up with dial-up modems and AOL. The next generation grew up with like an iPhone when they were in middle school. And so I think those things are getting faster. And yeah, I think that like, at least, you know, what I understand culturally and what I remember is definitely a feeling of optimism in the 90s of sort of, great, we got the World Wide Web and we're all going to connect and globalization is bringing us together and the Soviet Union's gone and everything's going to be okay. And then it feels like we've started to hit the hangover from that with realizing, oh, you know, all of this internet connectivity has its own ills that we have to grapple with. And uh, yeah, it turns out we did not defeat authoritarianism. <laughs> that was not something that went away. No. And I think that the there's always been gulfs between haves and haves not nots in human history, mm-hmm. going back to the beginning of humankind. And in most of the previous millennia, the have-nots were just conquered or enslaved or powerless. Mm-hmm. And now they seem to have more voice and more of an ability to threaten us back. And of course, the 9-11 attack is the obvious example of that. And that is ushering in kind of a new era in our history where not only do we have the superpower conflicts between us and Russia and China, but we've got these other gulfs with the Arab world and with people in our own country who are getting left behind or feel left behind. And uh, I know that rest of the century is going to be a tough one. Yeah. And I think that uh, if you look back on the 20th century, of course, there were a couple of world wars and the Cold War. And it's kind of amazing to see how humanity survived all that. But the Challenges we face in the 21st century are going to be just as big and maybe bigger. Well, one of my favorite quotes about science fiction is by Ursula Le Guin, who called science fiction the archaeology of the future. So while obviously not every science fiction book is a blueprint for what's going to happen, and I think it's really interesting with a lot of it to see how it represents when it was created. Like the Jetsons tells you a lot more about the 50s than it does about... uh, now, although I think George Jetson would have been born like last year or something like that. Oh, I never really kept track of what the dates of some of those things. No, are. I saw some little meme or something going around that was like, this is the day that George Jetson is born. Yeah, we've passed some of the dates for movies like Back to the Future oh, yeah. and Terminator. We're well past Terminator's convoluted uh, yeah. timeline at this point. But of course, when you have time travel those timelines get changed. So Mm -hmm. we're just in an alternate reality. Exactly. Hey, I know all about that. I did a spell to move us to world B and then uh, Trump got elected that year. (laughs) Well, that worked out well. That worked out great. Yeah, that was, uh, I've learned, hopefully learned my lesson about that. Um, But what are you, what are you, what makes you optimistic about the future right now? What do you feel like you see coming ahead that maybe can help us survive some of these 
troubles and tribulations? Well, I think there are a lot of promising things that are in development that really will be able to help huge swaths of the world. And mobile phone technology is an example of that because that has proliferated so widely that even people in remote countries and poorer countries, third world places, have cell phones, have cell service, and have access to the internet. And that kind of thing would never have been possible before. Uh, Vaccines are another thing. I know that the rollout of the COVID vaccine has been delayed and it's been highly unequal and that there's a lot of third world places that are at severe disadvantages, but we are moving medical care into these places and we're getting rid of things like smallpox and some of these other diseases that have plagued mankind for years. Be nice if they can figure out malaria because that's the biggest killer of infectious diseases and that's one of the hardest ones to lick. But I have great hope in the future of medical science. On the other hand, I think it is going to create a huge amount of inequality too, which we already have with people who can afford treatments and afford things and then other folks have no access to it. Oh, I know that extremely well because the medication, when I first found out about my rare knee condition, my PVNS or pigmented villonodular synovitis, if you want to say the the fun version, um, there was really no Wikipedia entry for it. Doctors were like, this is really rare. There's not a lot of information. And then I saw just in the years that I was dealing with it, there's a full Wikipedia article. And then it turned out that that was actually a good case to to develop tumor medications for because we tend to live and, you know, it's harder to do a study when a bunch of your study participants are dying of cancer. And so they came out with new medications that are cutting edge technology. And when I've talked to my doctor most recently, he's like, we're in trials for even newer ones already. So all of that has advanced just in the last 15 years dramatically. And yet if I was going to pay for the medication that I'd been on, it would be $30,000 a month, which that's unaffordable. That's not affordable. Even if I had a insurance plan that said we'll pay 75% of your medication cost, that's still not affordable. That's uh, enormous. Yeah. And that's one of the things that is really troubling is that the way health care and health insurance works in this country has improved since the Affordable Care Act, but it's still very convoluted and there are still gross inequalities. And the ways to make that better keep getting blocked. And, you know, I can see there's a lot of self-interest behind those obstructions because there are people who are profiting from the current scheme. You know, if we went to a single-payer Medicare for All type of scheme, for example, then all the other private health insurance companies would be relegated to minor roles or not exist anymore. And of course, their interests are not to get vanquished. And then uh, there would certainly be a lot of pressure on the prices that get charged. And so a lot of people who get rich off of the price of medical care would uh, probably suffer loss of income. And so you can see where those forces come from that oppose it. But what saddens me is that somehow that gets exploited by people who would actually benefit from having better health insurance, cheaper health insurance, uh, and 
Yet, for some reason, they get co-opted into this political movement that opposes these changes, even though it's actually against their own self-interest. And that just troubles me and puzzles me a little bit. Well, it boggles my mind because that was one of my big concerns, having a medical condition and moving into doing wizardry and hypnosis full time was, all right, I need to have insurance. And I realized that running my own business, I could be on Medicare. So I was like, okay, great. Medicaid. Medicaid. That's, I always get them confused. Medicaid. Um, so I could be on Medicaid. And I was like, great, that works. So I signed up for Medicaid, which took several phone calls where I was on hold for like two hours at a time, yeah. which, you know, if you're a working single mother, how do you have time to do that? I don't even know. So eventually I got on and thankfully I got in touch with someone who was helpful and walked me through it, get my insurance. And then, oh, all right, time to go schedule a doctor's appointment. And I called every dermatologist in the area and no one takes the insurance. I had a dental appointment coming up. I talked to my dentist. They don't take the insurance. No one takes it. So I don't know what people in this situation are doing. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I was just thinking that Kentucky is one of the few red states that actually adopted the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. And I think it's done the people of Kentucky some good, although with limitations that I'm not even fully aware of, like the ones you are just describing. And that's the sort of example where, you know, a lot of those conservative states are resisting things that would help people. And it's just boggling to me that they do that and that the people don't rebel against it. Yeah. I mean, I think your your metaphor about a car that's just railing into each guardrail back and forth makes sense because that's literally what happened in Kentucky is they they got set up with an exchange and then the governor that everyone hated, Bevin, came in and he dismantled that. And then the new governor came in and was like, all right, well, we got to bring that back. But then we have to kind of rebuild a lot of that infrastructure. And so it's hard to make progress when you're, again, teetering back and forth between two very stark and opposing viewpoints. It is. It is. So I think that in the long run, the history of humanity has definitely seen a lot of progress. And the fact that we're sitting here recording a podcast is something that people wouldn't even have known what it was and, you know, a couple of decades earlier. And yet in the short term, there may be setbacks and, you know, and uh, the history of Western civilization, we had the dark ages and things like that. Uh, Certainly that's a theme that comes up in science fiction too. And so I don't think progress is at all uniform, but if you really take a long view, then you know, we're not rubbing sticks together to make fire anymore. And we've definitely moved beyond that. Uh, And so I am in that incredibly long abstract view, quite optimistic that human beings are ingenious and whatever setbacks happened, uh, they will surmount them. Uh, Now, you know, in my life, I've been very privileged because there've been no wars that have hit where I live, uh, and um, there have been no famines, there's been no Great Depressions, uh, there has been a pandemic, but fortunately, m- almost everyone survived that. We had 
a tragically large number of COVID deaths, but it wasn't the Black Death wasn't the Black of the Death. Middle Ages, yeah. which killed a quarter of the population. And it's so interesting with the pandemic happening exactly when it did in terms of technology, where there was an infrastructure where a lot of people could just go online. Like I think that accelerated that greatly, but I definitely wondered about what would this have been like in the 80s or the 70s, the 90s, you know, another era when everyone's just inside watching their four TV channels and Yeah. There was a pandemic in 1918 right. and that was at least comparably bad to mm -hmm. what we just experienced in 2020 and 2021. But the thing is that as soon as that passed, everybody just forgot about it. And yeah. so that was kind of a historical footnote that a lot of people in the late 20th and early 21st century didn't know about or knew nothing beyond mm -hmm. that fact. And so how people got along back then and what the mask requirements were and all of that stuff has almost been forgotten. Yeah. There's a very interesting pattern too with the more comfort you're used to as a baseline, the more something that is uncomfortable becomes unbearable. Whereas I think in earlier times, I've played Oregon Trail, you know, half your party's dying of dysentery. Um, I read enough books, you know, like tuberculosis. There was plenty of other diseases that were a fact of life. And we still have that. I mean, the AIDS epidemic was another one that was not too long ago and is still ongoing in various ways. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that I think now we have this hyper focus on what's going wrong and a lot less tolerance because we didn't grow up losing friends left and right to pandemics and disease yeah. and infection or whatever else might be. In uh, 2021, there's a popular TV show called 1883 mm. that has uh, come out on the Paramount Network, and it's about a wagon train trip on the Oregon Trail. Mm -hmm. And there is just unrelenting hardship and misery and death along the whole trail and along the whole show. Until the end, they even kill off the star of the show. Oh, wow. And Spoiler alert. <laughs> so it has... Uh, been interesting to watch that and think how privileged and easy my life is compared to the hardships that people just endured as a matter of course in previous centuries. Oh, yeah. Um, I was watching this movie First Cow, which is about some people in, I think they're in Oregon, like early, like kind of like settlement village, and they um, are stealing milk from the first cow to come to the village and making baked goods with it. And it's it's, it's an interesting movie, but it is trying to accurately portray that and just thinking like watching them do some of the stuff and going, wow, if your ax broke, that is such a huge setback and you are just going to have to make do until you can, you can't go to home Depot and buy another. Axe. Right. Right. Yeah, I know. I think we suffer from um, the <laughs> disease of affluence in some mm -hmm. ways that we have everything at our fingertips, credit cards, internet orders, next day delivery and stuff like that. Um, we'll have to see uh, if tough times ever do come, then I think we're all going to be in for huge readjustments. Yeah. I remember at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in March of 2020, 
I was a little concerned, would this disrupt food supplies and yep. things like that? Because I think 98 or 99% of the American population does not work in agriculture. Right. And so we all depend on those grocery stores for our daily bread. And mm -hmm. if those shelves are empty, then uh, we're going to be facing a huge problem very quickly. And uh, fortunately, the only thing that came out of that was the toilet paper shortage, which we did manage to overcome. Yeah. But that was uh, a, a brush where I was a little concerned that we could truly be seeing a change from these soft times that we're accustomed to. And that's one of the most fascinating things is the way that I think I remember how scary the pandemic felt. I remember my partner being in bed and saying, hey, I'm looking on Twitter and like stores are just empty. We don't really have any groceries right now. Like, And so I went down to the little, um, more than a corner store, but there's like little market that was in the neighborhood and it was totally stocked and it was fine. I was like, oh, okay. And that was a moment realizing that what you were seeing on social media was not an accurate reflection of what was going on in the neighborhood. But then as things continued to ramp up and suddenly everything's shut down and no one knows what's going on and then people are wearing masks and gloves on the street. I've read enough science fiction to go, wow, this this feels surreal. And then what felt even stranger is to then, I mean, a year later, be standing in line at an airport wearing a mask and just going, all right, you know, this is just yeah, the well, way it is. We do get adjusted to new things and mm -hmm. just incorporate that into what we think of as normal. So that's a natural human response. And that's an adaptation that's good for us. But I do think that the uh, privations that we could be subjected to are um, a far cry from what we're used to. And so I just am hoping that my luck will continue to live in an affluent society and have the conveniences that I've enjoyed all my life. Now, when I was a kid and we were reading, you know, Asimov and other science fiction, obviously there's a lot of gaps where they're flying around in spaceships and going into warp drive, but no one has a cell phone or computers are still the size of room. My favorite one is that everyone's still doing snuff. Like <laughs> There's so much snuff in like 40s and 50s and 60s science fiction. And that's okay. completely kind of dropped out. Um but what are the things aside from, you know, computers that you've been surprised that we have not gotten or that we have gotten? Like, where do you think you as a kid being excited about science in the future? Were you expecting the space exploration to move faster? Did you well, think we'd have flying cars? What what so caught you off? Going? I was a child in the 1960s mm -hmm. and the whole space race to the moon was going on then. And there was enormous momentum and progress. And we went from Kennedy's speech in 1961 to Neil Armstrong's footsteps in 1969. So in about eight years, we managed to completely start a space program and develop all the necessary technology and actually get it to work and get there. And I feel like I, that's shorter than the time it takes like a city to build a new bridge now. It is. It is. And then the uh, movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, came out in, I think it was 1967 or 68. And I was at a perfect age. And that showed what will happen 
if you extrapolate to 2001, which yeah. was then about 30 years in the future, and we would have hotels on the moon, mm -hmm. and we would have hotels in orbit, and we would have shuttles that would go up. You could fly on Pan Am, which at that time was a popular American Airlines, which subsequently has gone out of business, but in the movie, they were flying passengers to the moon. So I have a photo that I took when I was flying JetBlue or something like that, and I was on the plane, and I'm looking at the movies, and I'm like, oh, I can watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. I haven't seen that in ages. So I'm watching that on the plane, and then there's a moment where they show them on the shuttle to the moon, and everyone is sitting in the airplane, and they've got little TV screens in the back of the chair in front of them. And so I paused the movie, and I took a picture where you can see <laughs> all of the like, it's like it lines up perfectly. You can see the aisle and all of the TV screens in reality and then the exact same image on the screen in front of me. <laughs> well, that's something they got right. Yeah. But unfortunately, the rest of that stuff they got wrong. And what happened was that the whole space program got derailed with the space shuttle, which is supposed to bring in this era of cheap and mm -hmm. frequent space travel, but instead turned into an enormous boondoggle where each flight got to be hundreds of millions of dollars. And then after we had an accident, there were years of delays and precautions got enforced even more stringently. And the other thing that happened was that there really isn't any compelling economic application for space other than the ones that we exploit, like satellites right. to look at our weather and help with communications. And so- the Dish Network. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are some good examples. You but, need ESPN 8. You know, there isn't any real reason to go set up farms on the moon. And the cost of doing that would be hundreds of billions of dollars and the economic return would be zero. So- it would be a complete waste. And that's why nobody's done it. Mm -hmm. They used to talk about manufacturing in space. And it turns out that there is basically nothing that's worth it yeah. that you can do up there that you can't do at least well enough down here, mm -hmm. if not. And of course, at orders of magnitude, less cost. Yeah. So until there's some sort of killer application for what man would do in space, I'm afraid that there isn't going to be any compelling change to the way space travel is in the 2020s, which is we've got a space station. We occasionally go up and mess around, but well, we have we're private companies that anywhere. are doing it more now. Yeah. Um, they have been talking about exploring Mars since they first set foot on the moon. You know, there was the idea that, well, now we'll go to Mars. And that was in 1969, and George H.W. Bush uh, had a major announcement of a push to go to Mars in, I think, 1989 or 1990. And, of course, none of that has gone anywhere. And yeah. human beings are no close to setting foot on Mars now than they were when I was a boy. Mm. And I have long thought that there was a window of time in the late 20th and early 21st century where it would make sense to send humans to explore Mars, but that the advance of robotic technology would eventually make that 
a silly idea mm-hmm. and that, that robotics would take a long time to mature. So there was that window of time there when human explorers would have made sense. But we're nearing the end of that period and the robotics are just going to keep getting better and better. And the truth of the matter is that human organisms are adapted for terrestrial Earth conditions. And you can, at extraordinary difficulty with a great deal of engineering and huge expense, engineer us so that we can go into space or go into the deep ocean or places that we're not designed for. But at some point, it doesn't make sense. And I mean, we, we don't even like it when it's too hot it. or too cold. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get, like, I mean, you know, on the, on the vast spectrum of possible temperatures, we're in this tiny little dot. And then if we get a little bit close to one edge of that dot or the other, we're like, oh, it's, it's 110 degrees out. I can't stand this. Oh, it's 20 degrees yeah. out. And this is miserable. So when I've been thinking about what the next steps are in technology, I have come to an idea that it's really about extending life to intelligent life to other formats. Mm-hmm. And robotics is certainly one example of that. And you can see maybe where that's headed, although we're still in the early days. We don't have practical self-driving cars in 2022 yet, although they're certainly experimenting with we have murderous, glitchy. And- self-driving cars. Yeah, actually, they're pretty good, but the standards for what they need to do are so high. And we're such a a litigious society that you really have to have, you know, 99.9999% success in order to not feel like it's too risky. And that's that's that's, a high standard. That's one of those things where, um, you know, that sounds like, oh, 99.999. And then it's like you multiply that by the population of the U.S. And it's like, oh, we're going to have fatalities all over the place. Yeah. But again, I think there's also the assumption that human beings aren't spilling big gulps of Coca-Cola on their lap while texting and trying to watch Madagascar on a DVD player on their dashboard while driving. Well, fair enough. Yeah. You know, um, human idiocy is going to be with us until the end of humanity. So uh, we'll never get away from that. But I also think that beyond that, it may be possible someday in the distant future to actually engineer new types of intelligent life that are maybe made out of flesh of some sort that would be adaptable to conditions like Mars or some other places in the solar system Scientists are also fascinated with some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, and Mm. those are at like um, minus 150 or 200 Fahrenheit or something like that. So human beings are even less likely to be able to go there. And yet, you know, I think the ingenuity of man is pretty unlimited, and we may be able to come up with something. It may just not look like us. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I think a lot about is um, the Charles Strauss book, Accelerando. There's a part where they send an exploratory ship and it's the size of a Coke can and it's got a big photon sail that they're firing a laser at to power. And they're just talking about, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to send something with a ton of mass, that really (laughs) takes a lot more energy. If you can make something that's just a hard drive and then has everything you need and you're running a virtual crew inside of it. That's a lot more effective. And that really changed my perspective. And since then, 
every time I see science fiction, even if they're, you know, talking about a generation ship or you have people in cold storage and you're traveling between the stars, it just seems like complete nonsense. And I know that there's a lot of radiation in space that you have to shield for. And there is any, any show that I watch where they're like, Oh no, our, our, our giant spaceship is broken. Let's send one guy outside of the spaceship with a wrench and he's going to get us fixed. I'm That'll like, work. I don't know if that, if that really, really works. No, I think the analogy to ocean ships and spaceships is always been poetic and it's been used a lot in science fiction mm-hmm. and people's imagination, but it breaks down in the ways that you're saying. Yeah. And there actually has been serious interest in some pretty significant scientific studies of what it would be like to actually launch a laser propelled sail with a very, very light payload, mm-hmm. like weighing grams. Yeah. Uh, to another star and they have some semi-serious ideas for it, but it would uh, still be beyond 2022 technology. Mm -hmm. It may not be beyond technology at the end of the century. You need a gigantic laser so that you can get that thing rubbed up to extremely high speed. And then you need a lot of other things to be miniaturized, practically the atomic scale so that they're light enough so that the laser can accelerate you to a decent fraction of the speed of light. And then there's still the question of, okay, now you're whizzing along at 20% the speed of light. Uh, What are you going to do? Just take a few pictures as you blast through the distant star system? There isn't a real good answer for how to slow down. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what we're kind of circling around here is this idea, which is something I've thought a lot about, of whatever is about to happen, whether humanity is going to get kicked back quite a few steps or go totally extinct, or if it succeeds, it'll become something that becomes less and less recognizable from what we know pretty rapidly. Um, there's this idea of generations, of humanity exists in a very interesting model where we have children and then we raise them but they're adaptable enough that they can grow up in a new world and adapt to the new paradigm um you had recommended coons the structure of scientific revolutions which i read years ago and you know that's the idea that basically science progresses as the new grad students start writing papers and the old (laughs) old scientists begin to die die. (laughs) and so there's always this transition and so whatever is coming in some sense, we're kind of handing the ball off to that. And for any individual human, that's the thing. Like, even if you lived a thousand years ago, you're still like, all right, I hope I hope the new chief of the village doesn't screw this up. I did a good job of navigating us through those droughts. So you are also my father and you have raised me and tried to hand off stuff uh, to me and had an influence um, on my life. What do you think are the values that for whatever is coming next that we can try and transmit and hope that? If there are robots hanging out on Mars, there's some spark that we can go, yeah, that feels like humanness in a way that we can be proud. Well, I think we can't lose our humanity. Mm -hmm. I think we have to recognize that even if we make all these great new technologies and, you know, some days human brains aren't even the smartest brains on the planet anymore, that 
we still need to take care of ourselves and each other. And I know that that's a value that your mother shared and that we probably implicitly passed along to you. And so I think that a lot of the world is what we make of it. There's an answer to the question, what is the purpose of life? I don't think anybody's ever figured that out in a way that satisfies me. And so I feel like we have to keep discovering that for ourselves. And one of the things about that book, The Nature of Scientific Revolutions, um, in addition to the aspect that you mentioned that I've always taken away from reading that was that unlike a class in science or something where the answers to the homework exercises are in the back of the book and that there is somewhere that you can go look up for how things work or what the, the correct answer is, the real world isn't like that. And we keep trying to figure out what's on the next page, but the next page is only written by us when we get there. Yeah. And we're not able to just uh, leap ahead. And we sometimes actually have to go tear chapters out Mm -hmm. and go back and say, no, we used to think that, but we don't anymore. And so what we define as the truth is sort of an ongoing evolving process rather than something that's ironclad and built into nature and we will, I think, be able to keep getting closer and closer to something that's final, like the answers in the back of the book. But I don't think this book ever has an end either. So I think we will just keep turning the pages. And so I hope as far as values go, that you are curious and motivated to keep turning those pages. And keep trying to uncover what comes next and also be willing to go back and look at some of those old chapters and say, you know, I'm not that way anymore, or uh, the world isn't that way like I used to think it was and take another look. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that I very much picked on and that's um, pretty much at the heart of my wizardry from an early age. I didn't really think the the Jesus story I was told in church made a lot of sense, but I didn't think I had enough information from my own short life experience to be a full-blown atheist because, I don't know, if a flaming angel appears before me with a sword, that, yeah. <laughs> all right, I'm going to have to take that into my paradigm. That's That's new information. And, you know, the history of science isn't everyone's wrong all the time, but we're definitely wrong in significant ways and we're seeking new information to add. And so... I think taking a lot of the current view with a grain of salt has been very helpful and important. Yeah, and I think that's one of the misconceptions and occasionally backlashes that many people have about science and against science is, wait a minute, you told us nuclear power was going to give us free electricity that would be too cheap to meter. And now we've got Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and... um, the Japanese tsunami disaster. And so what gives? And unfortunately, you know, science is an evolving thing and we get things wrong and we continue to learn things. And 
of course, we've seen that in many steps during the pandemic, too, that people didn't know what was going on. Authorities told us one thing, and then they said, wait a minute, we have better information. Mm-hmm. We are telling you the exact opposite now. Yep. And I know that is confusing and frustrating. It's just for me, but I think people need to understand that science is fundamentally a human endeavor, and humans just need to strive to keep doing better but that process never finishes. Slightly better. Yeah. And well, it is slightly better. You know, I think that slightly better over the years has gotten us from rubbing sticks together to make fires to where we are today. I mean, that's the, I think my core belief is in any situation, even when, I mean, you know, even something really grim, like you're a prisoner and you're going to be tortured there's always something that you can do to move in that slightly better direction. It might not be very much. It might, you might be very limited in those options. Um, but fortunately, most of us aren't, you know, waiting for the uh, specialist torture expert to come into our cell any moment. And oh, so I think yeah. in our regular life, there's a lot more options about where is that slightly better direction and how do we orient towards that? Yeah. And I, I think that that's part of what inspires the human spirit is that, we feel like we have options mm. and that may be an illusion, yeah. but it's a helpful one to keep us going. Well, that reminds me of a quote from a, a movie that you introduced me to and we both enjoy, which is the Terminator franchise of the future is not set. There's no fate, but what we make for ourselves. Yeah. And well, we don't have time travel or at least not yet. Thank so. God. Oh my God. I, th- this reality is confusing enough. If we had time travel, that would just be a whole headache. <laughs> I've tried to give a presentation on the different versions of time travel. So a group that was writing a script could choose one and just stick with it. And even that was a nightmare. So <laughs> Yeah, it's a fun topic and I don't think science fiction authors will ever tire of it. And occasionally they may even come up with a new wrinkle on it, yeah. but a wrinkle um, in time. <laughs> <laughs> fundamentally, um, I, as a physicist, don't believe it's possible. Yeah. Well, let's wrap things up with this idea of slightly better. So we're in, we're having a conversation here and now, but our voices are traveling in time into the future to reach all of the various listeners who will listen to this. And if there's something that we can tell them or ask them to do some small thing that they can say, that's a good idea. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And again, small, not go win a Nobel prize. Um, that's our spell. Like, you know, however many hundreds or thousands of people eventually listen to this, if some percentage of them do this thing that will make the world a slightly better place, what's something that they can do? Be optimistic. How can we, how can like, what's like a thing they can do to be optimistic? Is there a way that like a, a technique or some, you know, you could check it off your list of like, cool, I did that one exercise. Well, another word that I would really recommend is patience. Okay. That in some cases you have to let things play out. You have to give people room to make some mistakes or make their own choices that you don't necessarily agree with. You have to be able to forgive people and then you still need to try to encourage yourself and everyone that you're able to influence to move ahead in whatever way that is for them. So it's, 
it's hard, and I don't think that there is a very coherent philosophy there, but I do come back to the word optimism, just that I believe that good things are possible and that maybe I can help make some of those come true, at least a little bit. Well said. Thank you, Dan. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with my father, Mark. This is one of the fun personal episodes that, since I'm the wizard and it's my freaking podcast, I really enjoy getting a chance to just be vulnerable and have not just experts and other podcasters on, but people from my own life who have had a tremendous influence on me. After all, we're all spanning time and space together. No one knows where we're going. So I think it's helpful to try and trace our roots and influences back and forth in time as best we can. And if you've enjoyed this podcast as a ritual, it would mean the world to me if you went to patreon.com slash this podcast as a ritual and joined the community of ritual participants who are making this podcast slightly better every month. I'm doing this full time right now. And since I want to not be a disappointment to my own father, uh, you supporting the podcast makes that possible. It lets me hire my awesome editor who makes my words sound better. It lets me spend the time to get guests and to keep growing. And we've got so much more good stuff coming for you. So if you enjoyed this and we haven't all perished in some sort of nuclear holocaust, then visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where for just $4.20, you can make the world a more wizardly place. So until next time, just remember, the future is not set. There is no fate, but what we make for ourselves. I believe in you. Your magic is real. <laughs>